You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, uh, before we get going, quick word from our sponsor, lynda.com. Lynda is used by millions of people around the world and has over 3,000 courses on topics like web development, photography, visual design, and business, as well as software like Excel, WordPress, Photoshop, all taught by experts with new courses added every single week. So if you're looking to improve yourself this year, uh, whether it's setting new financial goals, finding a work and life balance, um, getting a new hobby going, asking your boss for a raise, lynda.com has a course for you. Special for our listeners, if you sign up today, you'll get a 10-day free trial. So you're going to go to lynda.com slash longform, sign up, you'll get unlimited access to every course on lynda.com, even on your iPhone and Android. Uh, some of the courses that kind of caught my eye as I was browsing through here, uh, JavaScript for web developers, I could definitely use that, uh, getting things done, grammar fundamentals, that one could be very useful. I'm personally interested in learning logic so I could take a shot at editing this podcast myself, putting Jenna Weiss Berman out of the job. So go to lynda.com slash longform, challenge yourself to learn something new in 2015. Here's the show. Hello and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I am Evan Ratliff. I'm from Atavist. I'm joined by Max Linsky to my left, Aaron Lambert to my right. Long Form. I like how you're giving like a 3D spatial uh, understanding to our listeners. Yeah, I feel like yeah, people... Is that like a, like a uh, football announcer? Yeah. We you don't know what's going on. From le- le- left to right on your radio dial. Yeah. yeah. So you, these people can really paint... A, we can paint a, paint a picture for them. We're all beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> False. <laughs> who's on the uh, Who's on the show this week? This week's uh, show is Josh Dean. Uh, I talked to Josh partly on the occasion of uh, he's got a story coming for us. Uh, actually, it's out. Uh, it's called "The Life and Times of the Stopwatch Gang," a crazy group of armed robbers who operated in the early 1980s, robbed like hundreds of banks. So anyway, he did that piece for us, and so I sort of used it as an excuse to talk to him about. Uh, freelance life. Josh is one of the best freelancers that I know. He writes for a bunch of magazines, GQ, Fast Company, all over the place. Makes a living at it. Everybody always wants to know, like, how do you make a living as a freelancer? Josh Dean. I am uh, never going to be mad at a bank heist story. Like, I will read all of them for the rest of time. What percentage of Adivis stories are bank heist stories at this point? Uh, five, maybe just five percent. Five, five to ten percent. I thought you were going to come with the question of what uh, what percentage of bank heists result in a feature article. <laughs> yeah. 90, 95%. One to one on that one. We love yeah. a good bank heist. Well, you, people should check it out. They should go buy it. It's on Adivis.com. I'm sure it's great. Let's talk about some sponsors. First one I want to talk about is Squarespace. Squarespace is the easiest way to create a beautiful website, blog, online store, anything that you have an idea that you want to build, you probably could build it with Squarespace. Uh, They feature an elegant interface, beautiful templates, and incredible 24-7 customer support. Um, You're going to go to squarespace.com, put in offer code LONGFORM, you'll get 10% off your purchase and support the show. Uh, We have another sponsor. Guys for, uh, <laughs> that's that's the that's the horn sound I started developing last week. I thought that was the alarm. Grid it's the sound. alarm. It's the alarm. Yeah. Uh, the, the sponsor is not alarm grid though. What? Oh, no, no. But this is I'm like ringing the the, the sponsor alarm. It's like a, a like a, it's like the top of a. You can see car. how you can. You could see how I would be confused when the alarm was introduced with the sponsor alarm grid. That's true. That's true. It is like it is a it's a small nod to 
the residual thanks to Alarm Grid sponsorship <laughs> that they've now added the alarm into my vocabulary. Al- alarm Grid's really getting a freebie here. I know, I know. It's hard to speak like the Lammer sponsor language. I'm not fluent. <laughs> I need lessons. Uh, the sponsor I was referring to is Tiny Letter which is a simple, elegant way to send an email newsletter. And I, I uh, saw a thing this week, that maybe you guys have seen this before, but I saw multiple people on Twitter this week refer to just their tiny letter. Yeah. The same way it would be like their Tumblr or their Twitter. Just like, get yourself a fucking tiny letter. Myself and the editor of this show, Jenna Weiss-Berman, were on a panel last night. One of the guests on the panel, uh, Nicholas Qua, who runs the tiny letter Hot Pod. Uh, I mean, you know, people getting on panels as a result of their... Uh, to be fair, that is a fantastic newsletter. Oh, it's a fantastic... That's when you know you've made it. Panels. It's, it's, a, it's, a great, uh, it's a great example of like something that you like go and sign up for, like a tiny letter right now, could like could be your thing yeah. next year. Evan, you're a big like conference guy. You're on the scene. Uh, yeah, I've, I've seen you on the scene, the conference scene. I've seen you out there. <laughs> hey, it takes one to see one at a conference. <laughs> Here's Evan with Josh Dean. All right, welcome to the podcast, Josh Dean. You are currently in the midst of writing a story for The Atavist, uh, which I'm not editing directly, but like I have read and I have weighed in on in various ways. So I feel like we're like finely balanced because you control the destiny of our uh, actually getting our publication out. That is true. And we control the destiny of like your words being your own. That is true. So I feel like it's a fair... The scale is like tipping day to day. It's tipping one way or the other. <laughs> no one has a has an inherent advantage in this situation. But I actually wanted to start with editing because I feel like you have followed a trajectory which is somewhat the inverse of the way a lot of writers end up. Which is a lot of writers uh, freelance, like in their twenties maybe, and they can afford to like not make any money or anything, and then they get an editor job or someone works their way up in the staff, and then you're sort of like a establish that and you whatever have a family life and then you're an editor and that's a more stable job and maybe it has health benefits and you've as far as i can tell taken the reverse path of that which (laughs) is that you were an editor with a stable job and now you are a like mercenary freelance (laughs) writer i threw out a very good career with benefits (laughs) in order to sit alone in a room and chase checks (laughs) that is true and I have two kids. Uh, exactly. Exactly what I'm interested in. Why, why did you leave being an editor? You were an editor at Men's Journal. Well, that that's an easy answer. Okay. I got fired. Okay. <laughs> Every editor at Men's Journal gets fired. Right. I, well, yeah, especially if you're the editor-in-chief. The higher up the masthead you get, the more likely you are to be fired. And if you're the editor-in-chief, you will definitely be fired. In the four year, I was there about four and a half years. I had four different editors-in-chief, or did I have five? Whatever. By the end... I was getting tired, and the person who took over at that time was obviously tired of me. I mean, we just didn't mesh. So, But, I mean, I was bummed to get fired, right? Anyone who gets fired is sad and shocked right away, and I think I went out that night. And you were got, not expecting to get fired? I wasn't expecting to get fired, though I knew it wasn't going well. I was, like, essentially—I was deputy editor, but I was essentially the, the features editor, and none of my features were getting in the mag. Like, my ideas were just not meshing with the person who was editing at that huh. time. So where did you—you you said you went out— Went out that night. And got drunk, and I talked about it, and I just decided by the next morning that like it was actually a good thing because I wanted to write anyway. You know, and it, my time at Men's Journal was I was a really pushy editor with the top editors above me, and that I forced my will upon a lot of stories that I probably shouldn't have been able to write. You know, like editors get to write at a lot of magazines, but often you're not encouraged to do so. Yeah. I kind of was always raising my hand to write stories because that's that's what I wanted to do. I mean, I came to New York to be a magazine writer, and like you said, you can become a struggling freelance writer in your 20s and, and live on couches and, and not make much money, but I kind of wanted benefits and I wanted some stability, and I also thought that being an editor was a way to make connections in the industry, and that's exactly what happened. So I worked at a volatile place where... The editor was constantly getting fired. So I worked with a ton of people in Men's Journal who went off and populated the ecosystem of magazines. And then by the time I did get fired and I left, I decided the next day to not go back. I knew people everywhere. So I was like, I'll give this a try because this is what I want to do anyway. I want to write stories. So once I was over the shock of being fired eight hours later, by the next morning I was like, this is awesome. I'm going to try and make this work. And that was 10 years ago. I've never once tried to go back. I mean, you know, there's some been some things in the middle that have happened, like play happened in 
Mark Bryant. Play being the New York Times Magazine. Sports Magazine, right. Sports Magazine that was Mark Bryant was hired to start that during the heyday of um, the Times Magazine division when T, T appeared and they were printing money before the recession. There was a point at which the New York Times Magazine division was like printing money. T had appeared and there were like nine variants of T, real estate, men's style, women's style, travel, <laughs> whatever. There were a million... They're like, let's start a sports magazine. There's a real estate real estate key. It was like a separate real estate thing. Yeah. So they hired Mark Bryant, who I knew from Men's Journal and Outside, and he asked me to help him start it. And ourselves with another editor started play. But so I was editing that as a quarterly thing that came out. Well, it's a quarterly, four times a year. It was like I was still a writer primarily, but four times a year I helped put out a magazine. That's as close as I've ever come to taking an office job since then. So basically that meant that Four times a year, I went to the New York Times building, helped put together a magazine, sat in an office for about three weeks. But it wasn't it wasn't the same as the as a pre as that editing gig at Men's Journal. It Not wasn't even like close a, because sitting there taking pitches and doing doing the whole the whole no. deal. I mean, I was taking pitches throughout the year. I got to do. I mean, I edited that famous David Foster Wallace Roger Federer story. I mean, some amazing things mm. happened there. Like, I got to work with some. Tr- I mean, you know, that'll be a career highlight for me, obviously, but. After that month, I would go off and write again for two months. And, and like that was the only way I could imagine working in an editing job. And that was okay. But I also, again, I wasn't, I was sad when it went away because I was really proud of it. I thought it was an amazing magazine that we did some, some of the best sports stories of the time and, you know, some of the great stories that people remember. Yeah, what, Federer- was the, what was the story of that Federer story? I forgot that, that, that you edited that story. That story has a great backstory because we tried to assign it to John Sullivan. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, John, I think, when he wrote his David Foster Wallace appreciation, which ran on GQ.com and not in the magazine, I think talked about this. So we tried to assign that to John Sullivan. Federer at that time was at the height of his powers, and we knew we had to do a Federer story. So you had a concept that was like a major nonfiction writer, or I guess fiction and nonfiction writer, goes and does a sort of spectacular portrait of this that's different than a normal yeah profile. like the, the story but also a little bit esoteric like not yeah. yeah not like yeah not just like a traditional profile of course right. john at that time this was 2007 probably wasn't quite the who the john sullivan is today his, mm-hmm. his like he's a more well-rounded literary figure i feel like now then he was just kind of this great magazine but he was writer. your first choice he, well, because I remember when I was at Men's Journal, whenever a ten, tennis story came up, people were like, let's get David Foster Wallace to write it. <laughs> and you would call his agent, and she would be Bonnie, and she would be like, he wrote like his tennis story for Esquire. You know, That was his thing. And like this sounds kind of dicky to say, but he was like, he's done his tennis story, right? Yeah. He doesn't need to write another tennis story. So I think... He doesn't need to do... He didn't need to do, need to do anything. Any, any magazine story. It's just like every magazine now, including like magazines that are launching like digital magazines they always say like we're gonna get you know, we get like michael lewis to do something like everyone says yes. that it's always like on some i remember when i worked at wired it was like always some on some board whiteboard where they'd written like dream writers and it was always like michael lewis it's like michael lewis is gonna say no he's gonna say no although he did write for us at play but again <laughs> we were able to get some amazing people there for a variety of reasons i think but but so how did you get there you what, what, why John so Jeremiah Sullivan didn't want to do it? John wanted to do it. I think we actually had assigned it to him. He was going to go to England, and then Jim Nelson stepped in and said no. Oh, the editor of GQ editor said of GQ, he's, on, he's, he's ours or whatever. Basically. Yeah. He said he owes us too many stories. And I think we'd already gotten Federer's alleged cooperation. Like the, the thing, the plan was in motion. So, John, Jim puts the kibosh on John. John's very apologetic and nice about it. You know, and Mark is a very connected guy. You know, he edited outside during its heyday when it won three consecutive General Excellence Awards. Mark knows everybody. You know, he's like John Krakauer comes over for marshmallows. You know, like he's he's really well connected. So if anybody, I guess, could make the call to David at that time, so he he to his credit, I think called Bonnie, David's agent, and it just so happened that. David was obsessed with Federer. I think because he loved tennis, and Federer at that time had, was playing like a version of tennis that we'd never seen before, like perfect tennis, like interesting tennis, like his angles and his shot making and the mm-hmm. way he was hitting the ball. And I think for whatever reason, she decided to ask him, and he said yes. And he had never been to Wimbledon, and we were offering him the chance to go to Wimbledon, so he said yes. And 
it worked out. You know, it turned into like one of the great sports stories of all time. And he, there's this like perception of him in the public. And I, th- you know, I remember Jonathan Franzen kind of puncturing this a little bit when his when he died that he was this kind of like bumbling naive from the Midwest and like Franzen was always like he's way more calculating and confident than he ever let on. But he really was kind of that guy. Like at least in my experience with that story, we sent him to Wimbledon. He didn't have a credit card. He didn't have a cell phone. He, he, I'm sure, had traveled quite a bit, but kind of acted like a guy who'd never traveled before. So we, like, you know, our assistant at play was like charging his hotel rooms, and we got him. I think we got him like a burner phone, and like I'll never forget my my wife, who was then my girlfriend. It was like one of the first nights I'd ever spent at her apartment, and at like three o'clock in the morning, the phone rings, and I like I look at my phone. And it's like a plus four four. I'm like, <laughs> oh, I gotta take this. <laughs> it, was, the, it was it's the DFW burner calling. It was the DFW burner. <laughs> and I'm not kidding. He was calling me because he couldn't figure out how to get on the media bus from the hotel to Wimbledon. <laughs> <laughs> so he's calling his editor in New York City at four o'clock in the morning to to like I don't know if it was to like ask my for my help or just to tell me that like I don't know how to get on the media bus. I don't know how to like Maybe to say, like, I may not get to Wimbledon because, like, I don't know how to get there. And I don't even remember what I said. Probably, like, take a cab and expense it. Like, yeah, you, you kind of need to get, get there. You need to get to Wimbledon. <laughs> so he became this, like, funny figure in our relationship. So, you know, when, when he died not that long after, a year or two, and, and she was, or was it three years, whatever. You know, it was like, I felt slightly personally connected to to him only in the sense that I'd edited this one story and we'd had interactions over the course of a month. I mean, obviously, like, all writers respected him greatly and thought he was, a, like, one of the best writers of, of his era. And, and he was wonderful to work with and funny and, and the whole sort of, like, naive side of him was endlessly entertaining, I thought, you know? I mean, he also notoriously, like, would fax, you know, like, fax or send these things saying, like, don't yep. do not you dare change this. Not not like that, but, like, funny. Th- I, mean, I remember seeing of, funny things like that. Yeah, I mean, kind of like that. He didn't, yeah, because he, he didn't have, at that time, he didn't have email. He used his wife's email. Yeah, he would fax things in. It was, like, a less menacing version of that. Basically... If you're going to change anything, we need to talk about it. Was the kind of unspoken subtext of the conversation, and to the extent that that was like an eight or nine thousand word, or was it eleven thousand words? It was a long story, and he would notice everything. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, there were cases where I think I would like change like a semicolon to a comma or something, and he would pick up on it. Like he was that attentive to his and kind of would dress me down, like. If you change something, we need to discuss why you changed it. There are not many writers, if maybe any, now who could even would even have the gall to try that. But also, you know, would notice probably that on that level, an eleven thousand word story when someone changes their punctuation. And he also, you know, the other famous thing. I don't want to spend the whole time talking about David Foster Wallace, but the, but the other famous episode from that whole story was that he, to his credit, and. I mean, most of us, I think, agree that the Oxford comma, the serial comma, is, should be used everywhere, right? I, I just had this conversation today. It's in the, out of a style forever. I don't even know how that there is an anti-movement, but the New York Times is in the anti-serial comma. They don't, And he was a real stickler. So he argued it up the masthead to the like copies are of the New York Times, and they made an ex- exception for his story. We, we ran serial commas in David Foster Wallace's story. To my knowledge that the first time maybe they've changed the policy but Mm. and i remember when he was making his case and his kind of like oh you know i don't want to create a big stink but i feel very you know i I, this is like a very passionate issue for me and uh, um if i need to talk to like bill keller you know i'm happy to do that and (laughs) you know and mark i think went and took it to the paper and and i remember david telling me he's like i think if it matters um i'm on the board of the oxford english dictionary and the american heritage dictionary so i think my credentials are like i'm I'm like i don't know that you need to argue your credentials (laughs) with me but but that's impressive (laughs) if anyone is in a position to take a stand on the Oxford comma. It's the guy on the board of the Oxford English Dictionary. So, so that's like that's like a peak editing experience. Yeah. But I, but so if all of my if, if editing could have only been editing <laughs> David Foster Wallace stories, then I think maybe I could have stayed with it. But what I always wanted to do was write and even at play I wrote a bunch of stories and Mark would probably tell you that I was annoying as hell. Hey, it's Max. I'm going to pause things for a second and tell you a little bit about two of our sponsors this week. Up first, HP Matter. 
HP Matter is a new digital magazine where the brightest minds in business share their perspectives on a technology-driven world. Uh, and even if you, like me, are not one of, say, the brightest minds in business, you're still going to find tons of interesting stuff in HP Matter. Their latest issue, which just came out this week, is all about the future of telecommunications. They've got predictions for how we'll all be talking to each other in 2020. Uh, this great interview with Facebook's head of mobile about the company's future in your pocket. Uh, and this awesome infographic, it really is uh, pretty cool, about the machines that will power all of this technological future of ours. Uh, so go check it out hpmatter.com or click the link in the show notes for a list of some of the most interesting pieces from the new telecommunications issue. Thanks very much to HP Matter for sponsoring the show. It's uh, great to have them. Our second sponsor is our old friends at Squarespace. Squarespace is the easiest way to create a beautiful website, blog, or online store for you and your ideas. Uh, If you have previously tried to build a website, blog, or online store for you and your ideas, then you know that doing so is a huge pain in the ass. Uh, Even if you know how to code, building a website is terribly time-consuming. Squarespace is here to make that process simple, easy, quick, exactly what you want building a website to be. They've got these beautiful templates. All you have to do is just click on one and go. Uh, All the design is responsive, so it looks great on any device. If you do hit a snag, you probably won't, but if you do, they've got 24-7 support via live chat and email. It really couldn't be any easier, and it's only 8 bucks a month. And if you sign up for a year, you get a free domain. Uh, So here's what you should do. My advice, if you would like to build a website, blog, or online store for you and your ideas, and you would like to avoid... Uh, murdering yourself in the process, go to squarespace.com and use the code LONGFORM at checkout. You'll get 10% off uh, and you'll be supporting the show, which would also be a nice thing for you to do. Uh, So thanks very much to Squarespace. Thanks to HP Matter. And let's get back to Josh and Evan. You said you moved to New York to like get into this business from from be where? a magazine writer. Where did that idea come from? I want to be a magazine writer. I went to a tiny liberal arts college in Ohio that no one's ever heard of called Wittenberg. But I had a really good experience there. There was no journalism. And I think at the time, like I, I was like my dad was a history professor. My mom had been an English professor. My, you know, my brother was in business. I was thinking about law school. I was like one of those kids who's like, I do well in school, I have no idea what I'm gonna do. Yeah. But I took this writing exam as a junior that we all had to take, a writing proficiency test, where you had to sit down under controlled conditions and write an essay. I think we had 50 minutes. And I got a perfect score on it. And it was like the only perfect score that had been scored in recent years on this test. Was it a test to get into something? No, it's just, just like, like testing juniors' writing proficiency. I think just to make sure, like, are we... We're a liberal arts school. Everyone who leaves here needs to be able to write and argue and think. And, like, this is one test of, like... People shouldn't be slipping through the cracks. So when they go out in the world, they need to be able to write briefs or arguments or stories. Um, If you believe in epiphanies, like that was a tangible epiphany in my life where this thing happened and I suddenly got all this praise and like the editor of the, um, the university editor who published like the alumni paper and everything suddenly wanted me to work for him. And like the local newspaper was like offering me an internship and it was Kind of like, oh my God, I'm good at this thing that I didn't realize, but just it makes sense. Just because the test, prior to the test, this was not a notion in your head? You just kind of no. like took this test I, and I loved were all like, to hey, read, you're... and my parents were writers. Well, my dad wrote a couple books, and my mom was a poet, and I don't know, this sounds really naive, but like being a writer for a living didn't seem like an option. It's not like it was on the list of, when I was looking at like lawyer, doctor... <laughs> accountant stockbroker like writer wasn't like one of those cards up there yeah and then suddenly it was, i was like oh wait then and then i then i took the limited journalism classes that we had and there were you know there was a journalism teacher there were five or six i took the creative writing classes i took the screenwriting everything i could take that was writing and then the things i let the thing i liked doing best was writing the longer you know for the student newspaper the longer features the profiles the for the alumni magazine and i it just was very clear to me that there were, not only did i want to be a writer but there was a kind of writing i wanted to do which was longer stories of where i could spend more time learning about something i didn't know about you know it's and it's always been my favorite thing about this job is that you get get paid to obsess over some subject that either i'm interested in or i didn't realize i was interested in and i get to learn about and you know, you become kind of an expert in a million different things. So how'd you get a job in Men's Journal coming from a college oh, that I, I literally can't remember? You said it a minute ago. Wittenberg. 
Wittenberg. Yes. Oh no, I mean it wasn't like I went straight to Minster and I had some shitty jobs. I like my first job was a uh, um, I worked for a trade publication that like did forecasting about the fashion industry. So it was like sock sales will be up in the fall of 1997. I've always known you to be very knowledgeable about where fashion is going. Well, there you go. That's socks. Uh, now especially. I understand. I'm very fashion forward with my footwear. <laughs> um, so you kind of like worked. Yeah, through different, I mean, I had some, then I went to my first like consumer job magazine job was at a teen magazine called Twist. So actually some of my first like national magazine stories were like Britney Spears. I mean you won't find these out there. Thankfully this was like before the internet put things up there. Oh, like, man. like my first traveling jobs for journalism like getting flown to LA which you know it's like not to sound uh, you can't not sound like a jaded prick at this point like but like at a certain point that becomes part of the job that's just what you do you travel out to write stories but yeah. i remember being so pumped to like go to la and stay in a hotel in santa monica and like i was interviewing britney spears the backstreet boys like sugar ray and they were published in a teen magazine they were like 800 word features um and then from there i went to details in its old incarnation which was like at the peak of the lad magazine explosion Condé Nast tried to pivot details into a lad magazine. So I got hired there just as the last editor was like pivoting into a lad magazine where they were putting girls on the front. And then like less than a year later it folded. And they brought it back later. That's a happy ending for that for details. For them. For some reason. And then I briefly went to another lad magazine, Stuff. Oh wow, that's deep in the lad oh, magazine yeah. territory. Which yeah, was Launched as like a brother to Maxim, and and there was like kind of my like the next evolution of the teen magazine. So I was like going out to interview like vapid starlets again for like an eight hundred word Q and A. But you know more of the exposure to the process of going out and interviewing people and traveling. Um, but yeah, I knew at the time what I I still always had that idea of what I wanted. This wasn't what I wanted to do. These were just make means to an end. And then from there I got a job at Men's Journal. You get fired, you realize, actually, this is kind of a good thing because I always want to be a writer anyway. Did you, just reading back through all of your, all of your pieces, I was trying to, I always try to like sort out some theory of like how you approach your work and then see if it matches uh, what you actually think. Like you do a lot of stuff that's like cars, stuff that's like, feels like it's very much like, I know how to deliver this piece. I know how to get this in on time and exactly what you want and helps me make a living. Uh, although some of them are very fun. And then you also have like very serious pieces and then you have pieces where like you get to have adventures and go all over the world. The thing I'm wondering about is when you set out to be a writer where you're just like, all right, I'm just going to pitch stories all over the place. Like, did you have a plan? No, I wish I wish I had like a roadmap or I was more mercenary about it. What I knew is that I knew a lot of people because Men's Journal churned through so many editors, and there were a lot of people I could hit up for work. And there were certain subjects that people knew that I knew, which, like, for, yeah, cars is a good example, or sports. Um, at Men's Journal, I had edited the car column, among other things. So I learned something about cars. So I kind of knew that there were magazines that might find that knowledge useful and, like, didn't have a car person. So yeah. especially at that point, less so now, but I, I was like looking at how can I sustain this model, right? Unless you have a staff writer job or you're married to a very wealthy person or you're independently wealthy, like, it's not an easy way to make a living. It's a great way to make a living, but, the, you know, the ideal situation sometimes is to have, like, more mercenary work that pays for the work that you care about. Yeah. You know? And I think a lot of writers pretend to be precious about that or maybe they can afford to be precious about it or they're above doing you know once you have a staff writer job like i was never and even now like i you know it's not that i won't do mercenary work i still do you know but it's like if it's easy and they'll pay me money for it and it's not embarrassing you know why would i say no to like yeah some you know somebody wants me to go drive some car it's like it, does that seem beneath i you know I, I sort of reject the whole idea of something being beneath me there are obviously some stories i wouldn't do or i have no interest in but yeah this job is fun and should be fun, and like, I wouldn't turn something down that seems like a fun thing for me to do just because maybe the story that ends up at the end is not something that like, ten thousand people are going to tweet about. I don't give a shit, you know. Yeah. Clearly, I want to be respected. Like certain stories, I care a lot about, and I want people to read. I always tell my dad, he's like, I haven't seen any. Have you written anything lately? I'm like, Yeah, I've written a <laughs> that lot of is stuff. The worst question for a freelance writer. <laughs> what are, What are you working on? What are you working on? What I haven't seen your byline I, lately. I, 
we need to make money. And <laughs> I, I work for myself from an office with no hours. I can take any days off that I want. But I also have a family and two kids. You know, I've, I have a cabin in the Catskills. Like I have, I have a lifestyle that I have to maintain. And if if if, if I looked at this job as like, I'm only gonna write six thousand plus word features for these six magazines. I, you know, well one, my kids would starve. You know, I would, <laughs> I would like, not be living in New York City. I would, you know, it's. It's a it's a it's a math you have to put together to make this job work. I mean, I think I, I you know you had um, Taffy with the complicated last name on Professor Ackner. Yeah, I mean, and she was kind of I think she was talking about this too. You know, she's very prolific. Yeah, right? and, and similarly, turn, like there out. are there are probably writers out there who will be like, oh my god, you write for Cosmopolitan. And it's like, well, who fucking yeah, who cares? Like, I mean, that's part of the ecosystem of magazines that pay us money that still pay us a decent amount of money for our work. So. You're crazy to not take that money when people ask you. Yeah, well, it's interesting because this stuff gets it gets sort of like untethered from its publication. Like, if someone were to read like the story you did, I I really like that story you did about the flooding in the Catskills from a few years ago, which was like a very, it was just like a uh, TikTok basically on like people whose lives were destroyed by a sort of unexpected unexpected flash flood and kind of like what happened to them in those moments and afterwards. And if someone read that story, they would be like, this guy must just write features like that for, you know, if you saw that, that's kind of what you would assume. And then you, if you saw a piece that was just about, I drove a Ferrari around for a couple of days on a track and here's what it's like. They'd say, this guy just writes stories like that. And the mix of it is very interesting to me. That's what I love about, like, I don't want to say I've made a conscious effort not to specialize, but I kind of have made, you know, I've at least made a semi-conscious effort not to specialize. You know, I write like business stories and I write stories for popular science about nuclear energy and I write, yeah, I'll take, go to Dubai and drive a Porsche around the desert. You know, it's like, it's because it's interesting to me to not specialize, which is not to discredit people who specialize because I think I'm probably, there are certain stories that I'm not going to do as well as people who specialize, but it's also helped sustain me in a way that if I were only writing about sports, for instance, there's certain magazines that wouldn't be assigning me work. But like at a given moment, I'm having conversations with popular science and, and fast company and GQ and a universe of magazines that are kind of unrelated, except that they are magazines that publish, you know, the work of what we call lifestyle consumer writers, you know, people who know how to write for a mass audience, right? I mean, Popular yeah. Science is a science magazine for a mass audience. Fast Company is a business magazine for the, a mass audience, Business Week. I may not know a lot about derivatives, but that doesn't mean I can't profile a hedge fund manager. Or um, I went, Business Week sent me to, I went to Korea and China to write a piece about cloning. I, I'm not a geneticist, but if you're a good enough journalist and you know how to ask questions, to people who do know what they're talking about. It's only your job to understand it well enough to interpret what they're saying and figure out, one, if it's bullshit, and two, if in a way that you can then translate it to the people who are reading it. Because the readers of Business Week are not geneticists either, or maybe some of them are, but they kind of want to know, well, well, this is crazy. There's a company that's like cloning dogs and other animals, maybe yeah. mammoths someday. Yeah. I thought the science in that piece was was uh, was really well done. Thank you. And also, like, uh, that, the guy that was written about... He was like the scandal guy who disappeared. Yes. And he was like, he's, he's ruined because he like made up, essentially made up his research. And then he's like emerged as this uh, he's having, he's having a, a renaissance uh, dog cloning, pet cloning guy. Um, well, I want to I don't want to get into dogs yet because I'm talk about that in just a second. Before we do that, I want to talk about this elephant polo story just because that is my favorite story. Uh, I think of your stories. And that was an outside piece, right? Yeah, that's how just, did that even <laughs> come about? You played, I'll just frame it. You played polo on top of an elephant in like the world championships of elephant polo in India. Uh, Nepal. Nepal. That probably the apex of ridiculousness when it comes to stories that I have done. But that's like a that's a classic like adventure, like freelance writer adventure that is you could not have in your life in any other way. <laughs> Although, that's a situation where even me, I'm a correspondent for Outside. I have a long relationship with Outside. But I feel like if I just pitched them like, hey, there's an elephant polo world championships happening, I should go play in it. They'd be like, ah, it's quirky. But I, what happened is a friend of mine was on a 
some kind of like liquor press junket to Nepal. Chivas Regal has always sponsored the Elephant Polo World Championship. Makes sense. Makes perfect sense. Totally. Ridiculous people who drink expensive scotch go to things like this, right? And the people that play are like, you know, like minor royalty and like dudes from Dubai who run like contractor, you know, they're like security contractor companies, like wealthy people who can do ridiculous things at their own expense. Well, anyway, my friend was on a junket and he was like watching elephant polo being played and the American ambassador was there and they like struck up a conversation and he said, why isn't there an American team? And the ambassador was like, that's a good question. You should go home and start one. So he did. He came back and I wish I could take more credit for it. He like put it together. He, he, there was a, a travel publicist who we're both friends with who was able to secure a bunch of funding. So I actually was going to do that anyway because it was just too ridiculous. He was like, do you want to play on my elephant polo team in the world championships? You were going to do it and not, not even write about it? or It's the kind of thing where you know you're going to write about yeah. it, but... but well, but th- so then I like took it to my outside editor and said, "Listen, I'm doing this thing anyway. It would be kind of funny, you know, should I write about it?" And they were like, "Yeah, you sh- you should." Yeah, and it was paid for. But how did you deal? You dealt with the junket part of it by just writing that. No, into actually it actually wasn't a junket. Oh, it wasn't. It, no, the 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 travel publicist who became our manager, um, Melanie Brandman, who runs a big travel PR firm, um, actually put together sponsors. So we had sponsors. We were sponsored by Continental Airlines and. But then did they have to be, like, mentioned in the story? No, because they weren't sponsoring us because I was doing a story. They were just... They were just sponsoring the team. The team to be participating in in this glamorous event. They felt... Continental Airlines felt like their brand would be enhanced by a close association with the luster of Elephant Polo. (laughs) And, I mean, why wouldn't they It's clearly... It's it's taken off since I feel like the brand has really taken off since I wrote that story. But you... we won't, I won't give away the ending because I think people should go read the story. It's fun. We'll link to it in the show notes. But also, it was like the things fell into place for you to write about it for the most part, like in terms of how the team did. But it also it felt like you did have to do a lot with a little in terms of like the sport is it's actually just like a bullshit thing. Oh, it's I mean it's it's ludicrous. It's not yeah. It's like a made up. It's not a sport. It's a made up sport for like rich bored people. I mean actually that's not totally fair. It was created by a family who runs some eco resorts in Nepal as a way to help promote elephant tourism. Oh, and they've well, done a lot fair. of good to promote the cause of elephants in Nepal and the the mahouts which is what the elephant trainer drivers are called get involved and it's like the money goes to charity and it actually has a positive thing. On the other hand, the people who come and play in it are like ludicrous rich assholes. Like so CBS this morning did a segment on us and Bill Geist who's amazing did it and we were like we need to practice. We're the New York. We're the first American team. We're New York. We're gonna going back to cars. I had this idea. I'm like, well, how do we practice? Well, it's really hard to simulate an elephant without an elephant. But what if I get a bunch of Cadillac Escalades with sunroofs, and we'll all sit on the roof in the sunroof? That seems like about the height of an elephant. And we don't have the polo mallets that are long enough, so we'll go to a hardware store. And one guy's job was to get the like, plastic piping and to, to fabricate like a six-foot polo mallet. So it was like freezing cold, like November afternoon. We went out to Jacob Reese Park in Queens, which is the largest parking lot I could think of in the Rockaways. Like the only parking lot in New York big enough to drive Escalades to around. To fake elephant polo practice. To, yeah, to, to have like Escalades squaring off with people sitting on top of them with these giant mallets, like practicing. And CBS Bill guys came out and filmed us. And I mean, it was not, it was, it was ridiculous. I mean, the whole thing was ridiculous. It's, What's even more ridiculous is that we did well. Yeah, that's, I mean, yeah. <laughs> we, we did not embarrass ourselves. It turns out if you're, like, a decent athlete, you can adapt to a lot of things. And you're playing against, like, fat guys who, who drink scotch. You know? No one is an elite elephant polo player, right? It's, there are guys who come back again and again and get better. And we went back the next year and played again, and actually we, didn't, we did worse. But I have one more question in this vein, and then, uh, and then I want to talk about books for a second. But you've, you've done, like, pieces like this, which is not exactly, like, dangerous like it's a lark but like whatever he could have gotten hurt but it's you you did that you've done like snowboarding in iran where one of the details of that story that i thought was like why did you do that was like i smoked pot with three different two or three different like groups like you can get like imprisoned and like once you have had kids did your approach change to these assignments 
It definitely changes the the concept of time. If my wife is listening, she'll she'll be like, "I've heard you say this so many times." <laughs> but like, I will subject myself to like kind of ridiculous travel schedules in order to do things and still be like a decent father. You know, I mean, which there's a couple of things I could say about this. One is that, like, for instance, if it's a story like last not this summer, last summer, I had two different stories that required me to go to Sweden in the summer. One of them, I went, flew over, spent a day, flew back. I basically went there for, I don't know, 36 or 48 hours. It's like, like almost as much time on the plane. Yeah. Like just ridiculous. I was wiped out. It was crazy. And it wasn't because she asked me. Like, this is not to say that like my wife is like, she's actually also a journalist. She works at People Magazine. Really understanding and super supportive of everything. It's a pressure that I feel. It's not a pressure that she puts upon me. I just felt like I'm going there to do an interview. Like, I can do that interview in one day. I don't need to stay an extra night. Just to, as a single person, I would have stretched that out over four or five days. In the in the magazine, probably would have been yet. Yeah, totally, that's fine. You're going. So, it's absolutely changed the way I've gone to L.A. and back in a day before. That said, there are some like when I went to do that cloning story in Asia, I was gone for eight days. And there are times where, if the story warrants, Afar sent me on this sailing cruise with my dad in, in Indonesia. For two weeks, and mm-hmm. I mean that's two weeks is way beyond what I would typically do. But that was a chance to spend two weeks with my dad as an adult. Like that's not something I thought I would get, and I'll never get it again. So, and again, my wife was like, "Absolutely, you should do that." Like they're going to pay to send you and your dad to Indonesia to sail around on a boat for two weeks. Like you'd be crazy not to say right. yes to that. Like, that's not like chasing Britney Spears around L.A. or no. Vegas or something for and, two weeks. And I can imagine situations where like the right adventure story. It would totally be fine. Now, would I, like, put myself in danger or go to a place where I thought, like, I could get arrested? No. I mean, clearly, I can't. I mean, my gut says yes because I would kind of want to, but no. I mean, It's good for the story. Smoking is. pot in Iran is good for the story. It's totally. a good detail. I mean, I would go back to Iran. I think I was maybe a little naive. That was 2007. Like, Knowing what I now know about people who've gotten in trouble there and ways I could have gotten into like that whole thing, I'm not good at preparation. I'm always the guy running for the plane. Like I was in Baltimore last night. I was literally like the last guy on the Amtrak as it pulled out. <laughs> I got to the station. I there were no cabs. Like I'm constantly that guy. As much as I travel, I'm terrible about preparation. A funny story about Men's Journal. I <laughs> when the Iraq War started, whatever year that was after September 11th, that we have invaded the next year, 2001 or 2002. The Pentagon was like very upfront about the media. Maybe because in retrospect they felt so bad about the the war built on lies that they were going to put journalists in every division. Like there yeah, was, it was all the, about embedding. They trained yeah. everybody. Well, we had a slot at Men's Journal. We gave it to Hampton Sides. I don't think Hampton Hampton won't be mad for me telling the story because he wrote about it for the New Yorker. Hampton went to the training where they made him put on the chem suit and he freaked out. He's like, fuck this. I'm not I'm not <laughs> I'm not gonna go get gassed by nerve gas. So he backed out. They were they were like, okay, you can have your spot, but you have to fill it within twenty four hours. So I raised my hand. I was like, I'll I'll do it. And for whatever reason they were like, okay, really, if you want it, you have until tomorrow to make this decision. So um, I went home Called my brother, who was in the army, told me some story about he hadn't seen any combat, but he was in Korea during the Cold War, and how he like almost crapped his pants hearing artillery. And I called all these people. My dad, who was like really super supportive, my biggest fan, and who was like, "You should do it. It's a great opportunity." And I was like, the next week I was supposed to go on vacation with my girlfriend. We were gonna go to Mexico. Anyway, I stayed up all night weighing, 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 and I went in the next morning, and I was like, I I just can't make the decision on this kind of notice. I'm going to pass on. So I passed on it. When I called my dad, by the way, he was like, thank God. He's like, that was the worst advice I ever gave you. I didn't sleep at all last night. My Polly, my stepmom, was like, why did you say that? Like, He's like, I'm so glad you didn't go. (laughs) I would have been embedded with the um, first Marine recon. Evan Wright ended up with that group. He wrote Generation Kill, which went on to be like a big bestseller and a successful HBO. <laughs> this is like foreshadowing for another story we're going to deal with. I'm not saying that would have happened to me, but and I don't even know if I regret it, but that that's an adventure. That's a, a dangerous situation I passed up. Clearly today I would not embed with like, you know, Restrepo. Right. right. 
so before we get to the thing that I know you want, to, I want to talk about, uh, which you may or may not want to talk about. Let's talk about the book that you wrote, uh, which resonated with me deeply because I don't know if you know, but I, my family raised Dalmatians when I was a child and uh, showed them at dog shows. Were you a junior handler? I never was. My brother was. So your book is about dogs and dog shows. Um, actually, I think we may have re- been reporting at the same Westminster dog show one year. Were you reporting there? Yeah, I did a story for National Geographic where I, w- I went to the Westminster Dog Show and reported on it. Uh, it did not that much of it made it into the story, but it was 2010, which I think from reading your book yeah. was like a I time would have been you there. Were, yeah, 2010, were, 2011 were the two Westminsters. Uh, I mean, we can't cover the whole book, but one thing that is kind of like you reference it in the at the beginning, and it was so interesting, like following the tra- trajectory of it is like, how do you pick a fucking dog? to follow like you're picking a subject first of all that is not sentient like you cannot interview your main character which is like a dog named jack (laughs) but also like how do you pick a dog that you're then going to follow for what seemed like years like a very long period of time through like his pathway through like dog shows and trying to become a champion and grand champion it was a year well yeah it's funny i pitched the story to my agent long before we sold the book and he was like, "That's great." I was like, "I'm gonna, I want to profile a show dog, and I want to spend like a year." He's like, "Great, well, you should do it. I can sell it. Go find a dog." So then, I, that was several years. I, then I was kind of like, you know, like what you're saying. I was like a paralysis. I'm like, "Whoa, wait a second. How do I? What? How am I gonna choose? Like, there are 190 whatever breeds, and like each one, like." How do I like know which one is going to be successful? How do I know if it's going to be an interesting dog? Like, there's a handler, there's an owner. This is crazy. How I'm like, so I was like frozen for a couple of years. Like, this is a book I could probably do. And then, actually, it was kind of another situation of necessity. It was really when, in the year after the recession, when the magazine industry cratered, I had more time than I'd had in a while, and I was like, okay, this is when I need to write my book. Because I have time. Yeah. I didn't have kids at that point. Like, I need to do something good with this. Because I was still working, but less. Everyone was working less. The only way I could make it work was to find a dog. Like, I couldn't start with a puppy because how do I know? Like, every litter, even a litter from show dogs, you don't know. They might all wash out. None of them might be show dogs. I decided, like, I should find a dog that's kind of already on the circuit, doing pretty well, but interesting. And kind of doesn't matter like of course in my dreams i want the dog that's going to go on to win westminster i want the rudy dog who's like an underdog is going to win westminster so i just went out i started writing to handlers in my area in the northeast and just basically saying that here's who i am i'm a journalist i have this idea almost all of them ignored me a couple of them wrote back there's they're super busy those people work crazy hard this um, one of them heather bremer who was part of the couple that i ultimately followed wrote me back Initially, like, very hesitant because she'd had some stalkers. There's, like, dog show handler stalkers. Mm-hmm. I think she was like, I'm very busy. Call me. And it turns out when I called her back, she was, like, vetting me to make sure I wasn't a creep. Yeah. Are you part of the underworld of Yeah, like, are you just a weird stalker? So then she was like, you should come out and meet us, see what we do. So I went to a dog show in, Westman, in uh, Westchester. Uh, and I just met them, and I looked at their dogs. They had a variety of dogs. And I knew that I'm, like, a big dog person, so I'm, like, I don't want to follow a Pekingese, and I'm not really a poodle person. It should be, like, a oh, dog. like, a large dog person. A dog that I would own, which is, like, maybe a Lab, maybe a Bernese Mountain Dog, something. And there was this Australian Shepherd at the show, and he was, like, a beautiful dog. He, he had a lot of personality. He's like, kind of an electric personality, actually, which is funny to say about a dog. But he, like, literally was, like, vibrating on the table. And it turned out, like, one of the tensions in the story uh, in the book it was like a useful narrative element for me was that he was like a aesthetically perfect dog who when he was on was amazing but he was a little bit of a loose cannon he he was like a live (laughs) wire who would like maybe jump up and like start humping a judge at some point so i didn't know that was going to be the case i just knew that he was looked good he was interesting his the handlers were friendly and were going to give me access because that's important right like I always say, like, I give a lot of credit to the subjects of stories and especially books because to to give a journalist permission to follow you around for a year with a notebook and a tape recorder, like, that's an amazing amount of trust. I wouldn't want someone following me around. I would. There's no way. Yeah. Like, it just, no, but no these people were super gracious. The owner of the dog was gracious. They kind of all tr- implicitly trusted me. But also if they, if they had said, like, ah, we're just not going to show this dog anymore. Then you'd be fucked. Yeah, I would. Then like the book falls apart in the middle. I yeah. mean, there were times it, 
it worked out because she, the owner, was struggling with money, whether it was worth it to keep showing him or not. And I was trying not, you know, I was starting to feel like, is is the pressure of me causing her to show her dog more than she wanted to because there's a journalist writing a book about you. like you, And you don't want to start to become that pressure on the story. Right, some Heisenberg principle happening with the dog shows. In the end, he... He was very successful, but not tremendously successful. He almost won a couple big shows. He had, you know, it wasn't outrageous that he could like win best in show a couple times. He didn't quite, but and it kind of didn't matter in the end because I, what I realized and what I've heard, I mean, in in that that situation, you want to write a book that the public likes. Anyone who doesn't care about dog shows, but but the real test of how good a job you've done is if the people from that world read it and say like this is fair you yeah know? we've all seen best in show it's amazing it's funny real life is is very similar to best in show one reason that movie's so funny is it's so accurate and yeah you'll hear that from dog show people and, and my challenge was like if i if i'm just out to make fun of people it's very easy like but that's not a book right that's maybe a magazine story in certain magazines but like these people need to be empathetic you need to want to root for them yeah you're going to make fun of some of them but they're going to say things that to the average reader are going to seem ridiculous and you're going to laugh at them, but then they're going to read it and not think it's outrageous. Like That's doing my job well, I think. And yeah. I've heard from people in the show world that they rec- it's the book that people recommend to each other still. You yeah. know? And, and I'm proud of that. And I think that's a good test of any store, magazine story now. It's kind of like there are certain subjects, and I'm sure you've run across them, where you just know you could do like such a hit job on them or like you get... I feel like one of the whole points of a like a deep subculture story like that is that if it if it comes off you don't read it thinking like look at these people they're insane like why are they so obsessed with dogs you you actually come out of it thinking I'm obsessed about something else in that same way totally like, I mean, you, you relate to the the way they connect with their dogs it sounds crazy to someone who doesn't like dogs but the whole idea is like you have that with something you just it's not dogs. There was an anecdote I, I, I like to tell in interviews when I was doing interviews for that book, which was I was in the middle of reporting that, and I would come home and tell my wife like stories of these crazy people, and oh, aren't they so funny? They're so obsessed with dogs. And I'm a big sports fan, and my one of my teams is I grew up in West Virginia, West Virginia University, basketball and football. And that happened to be the year that West Virginia went to the Final Four for the only time in my life. And in the grade eight, Literally, that the day that they played Kentucky, Kentucky was ranked number one in the country and heavily favored. West Virginia was an underdog. I went to a dog show. It was in Edison, I think, that day. And I came home, like rushed home in time to watch this game. No one expected West Virginia to win. Well, they did. They won. It was upset. And like there was one point late in that game where I was like on the floor with like a pillow over my head, like screaming <laughs> at the television, acting like a fucking lunatic. And like I just like had a moment where I like stepped out of myself. And I'm like, if dog show people could see me right now, like they'd be like, what is wrong with you? Like these are a bunch of people playing a game. You don't know these people. They're yeah, wearing. At least a we sh- love these dogs. We know them. Yeah, at least these are like our dogs. Like who do you know from like wearing these uniforms that happen to be from a town that you once lived in like who's the crazy person here so that was a very useful moment of perspective for me where i was like okay i get it like any subculture looks ridiculous and a crazy sports fan is one of the i mean there are a lot of us like yeah the only reason it's not more outrageous to be an obsessed sports fan is because there's so many of us so you your 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 book came out and uh and then even in your bio on your website it says like i'm looking for a new book idea Please help me. Send me an email. Oh, is this? The, are we going into the therapy portion? Well, I'm interested in, uh, well, that you were looking for a new book idea. You're doing this piece for us, which we should describe. It's a kind of, it's a very like the atavist type of piece. Like it's a thing that happened in the past that uh, a lot of people forgot about. And uh, I don't actually remember how you found out about it. Well, it kind of relates to the story that you're leading up to, the, to the, the book thing. At some point, many months ago, I fell into like a bank robbery rabbit hole one day, and I ended up on the FBI's website just reading about old cases. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the sort of bigger picture was I was thinking maybe there was like a, a bank robbery book to be done in the vein of Brendan Kerner's hijacking book, like yeah. maybe kind of a collection of stories about it's like the one crime that's it's like seems larger than life and sanitized in a way that they all become folk heroes. 
so I just started reading about bank robberies and I found this story of this Canadian gang who apparently were very famous at one point, especially in Canada, but I'd never heard of them and I mentioned them to everyone. They were called the Stopwatch Gang. And I started reading about them. I was like, this is a great story. And even if it was, I mean, I'm sure this has happened with other out of his stories where it was famous at one time. A lot of people from that era might know about it, but after a certain point, nobody knows about it. And in the States, you know, one of these characters is who becomes the narrator of my story is still pretty well known in Canada, especially among people over 40, probably. But Americans don't know anything about him. I had had not heard of it when you. It's one of those cases where you think like, oh, Canada is just like America. Like they have all the same culture. But then you realize in certain cases, it's not at all like America. They have a whole like like there are celebrities there that you've never heard of. I've criminal heard celebrities. Of. There are criminal celebrities who are household names that we've never heard of, and you will find you will hear about them in in my story. <laughs> it was a case of like just spending a day reading about characters, and these guys just stood out to me. So then you started working on the story for us, which is like a perfect story for us. But how did you get access to the guy? How did you find? So there's one guy. There's three bank robbers. One of them's dead. One of them's no one knows what happened to him. The other one is like getting out of prison, halfway house situation. But how did you go about like reporting that out? I mean, and part of the story is that he at one point redeemed himself and became a fairly known writer in Canada. Um, I just I, so I wrote to his publisher and just said, is there any way you could get me in touch with him? I knew he was on the verge of getting out of prison. I actually didn't hear back from them. I think I emailed his publisher, didn't hear back. But then out of the blue, I got an email from him saying, I heard you were looking for me. Almost like that terse i think Hmm. so then i wrote him back we had like a bit of a back and forth we did this kind of dance of like i don't really feel like there's much i have to say you know he'll he's told his story a million times he's written a couple books he's been up and down but then i just kind of like talked to him more and more and we hit it either hit it off or he it came to a point i mean it's clear that he likes to talk he's a very thoughtful smart guy he feels like even though he's told his story a million times, that he hasn't always told it the right way. He's kind of late in life and feels like he wants to set the record straight on some things. He had a partner, the the one who's died, who ended up being the most famous of the three of them, a real folk hero in Canada, and I think maybe feels a little like his star was eclipsed a little bit by Patty Mitchell and was ready to to tell a bigger, wider, more well-rounded version of that story. You have to commit some serious robberies to feel like like your literary star is eclipsed by like your fellow robber who became more fam- <laughs> famous than you. But they did. They committed an incredible number of robberies. They did. They were very successful bank robbers. I mean, no one, you can't quantify these things. Well, I guess you can by amount stolen, and, and we don't really know exactly, but they were very successful. I mean, dozens, 50, 100, we're not sure how many, but they don't even know. So, uh, I would encourage everyone to go read the story for obvious reasons. But I'm also interested in, and we've talked about this uh, previously, that you had another story that spun out of the story in some way. Yeah. So, as you noted, I, I've been looking for a book since Show Dog. And that was, when did that come out? Two, 2012. But I finished writing it in 2011. I kind of always assumed I would immediately go into something else because I liked writing and reporting a book. And like to, to bring my dad up again... One of the questions my dad never stops asking me, like, not every time we talk, but almost, like, what, what's your next book going to be? Mm. I've been thinking about this. I got some ideas. What's your next book going to be? <laughs> like, for years now. So, and I, it's not that that's the pressure that I felt. It's like, I knew it had to be really different than Show Dog. I didn't want to do another year in the life story. I wasn't going to do another dog thing. It wasn't going to be. You could just become the dog guy. I could become the dog guy. I could do another, like, embedding for a year i don't want to be the year in the life guy you know i don't want to do cat shows you know people are like you should do cat shows you, <laughs> you should, cannot you should, make a book out of cat you should shows do there's no way i've been to a cat show fancy you cannot chickens. make a book out of it you should do yeah the cow sh- i mean i get emails and suggestions like that right but as you can see from the kind of stories i do like i i'm really trying hard not to be that guy of any kind like right so anyway my my pressure that i feel internally was like the next book's got to be so different it's got to be something completely different like just so people will think this guy could do anything. You know, mm-hmm. I just want to be a good journalist who writes interesting books. So while reporting the Stopwatch Gang, on many days, I like would trip back down into that same rabbit hole. And I would – like the FBI – there's like a million amazing stories in the FBI archives of just like – even on their website, they've got sections of like cases, like abstracts, not necessarily a lot of information, but teasers. And then you can go to Wikipedia. and So I found – oh, man, this <laughs> 
Jesus, the other tissues. <laughs> so I found this story. There was a period in the 1920s where um, early in the FBI's founding, it was just being founded, actually. Hoover was an associate director. He was in his 20s. Um, the West was still being founded. If you can believe it, that was actually one of the things that surprised me. In the 20s, the West was still coming together. Yeah. And in the prairie, the Indian nation, the Osage Indian nation, became the first tribe to acquire their own land and that it wasn't given to them by the government. It was actually acquired through a series of injustices done by the United States. They were given the money to purchase their own land and they bought this land that was like pathetically small and much compared to what their territory wants. It's like, every, you know, it's like tragic in a way. However, it, oil was struck on this land and they became overnight the wealthiest population per capita in the world. They were like the Qataris or something, like a small population, like Fewer than 3,000 of them, fabulously wealthy, crazy stories break out. Reporters go and write these, like, really insulting stories about how these, like, Native Americans don't know how to, like, fold their sheets. And they, like, you know, they, like, buy these expensive cars and they drive them into the ditch and abandon them. Like, as you can imagine, what happens is that white opportunists move in and start taking advantage of them, of course. Like, building them houses they don't need and selling them shit they don't need and selling them cars and marble counters and, and you know, the next natural evolution is criminals and a conspiracy broke out in which a series of um, murders, suspicious deaths occurred. And the case came to the attention of the, F- the nascent FBI, then called the Bureau of Investigation. And uh, Hoover was one of the first people associated with this case decided to send agents undercover for the first time in the history of the FBI into Indian territory to break this conspiracy case. Who's killing these Indians? Turned out it was a, basically a local mob boss who had been ordering these murders in order to accumulate mineral rights, their oil rights, to enrich himself, basically. Mm-hmm. So it's an amazing like murder mystery story with a conspiracy that happens to be set with the setting of the foundation of the FBI. Like, great narrative with a huge and important context right so yeah, i mean I, in it. this was like one afternoon i was just like oh my god that's it you can never guarantee a bestseller but i was like this just feels like the kind of thing that has a chance to spark you can only hope that your book has a chance i mean i thought that was show dog and it did well but it didn't do great i thought like maybe this is the kind of book that, but this one is like it's it's about the wild west it's about the fbi it's a murder story like there's gonna be a big movie about it this is fucking i'm gonna be this is this is my <laughs> moment <sighs> So we send the proposal out. I'm excited. He forwards me a couple responses. They're really enthusiastic. The next day, my phone rings. It's him. He's like, I don't have good news. He's like, I just got a call from the head of Double, head editor Doubleday. David Gran has been working on this book quietly for two years. <laughs> I mean, I, you just, I think I like literally fell out of my chair because... I admire David Grant. I th- he's one of the best at this thing. Like I read his stories voraciously. I know what David Grant is doing. What the fuck? He's been doing this. Qu- like how has he been doing this in secret? <laughs> this thing that I found deep in the FBI files, which was at one point a big story, but then it kind of fell out. It's kind of like stopwatch or anything else. In the twenties and even up into the forties, Hoover thought this was part of his legacy. Like I launched the first undercover investigation. Yeah. I broke this case. It was Indians. No one was paying attention to Indians. But then, like, Prohibition happened and mobsters came around. It just got forgotten, right? There had been a few small books, no big book. There's a book in the 90s where it was, like, a thread, but there had been some novels. Anyway, it was very clear to me that it had been for. I, like, did all that research. I'm like, I just felt like I was fully in the clear. Like, of all the things that could happen, like, you never know. Maybe publishers will be like, we've published too many Indian. I mean, I would have been bummed, but I guess I could have accepted it. I didn't think that would happen, but this was the thing. I was like... What? That's out of nowhere. David Grand. Like, what are the chances? What are the, the fucking chances? What? And he didn't write a New Yorker story about it? Like, how is that possible? So he said, like, yeah, they didn't ever release it. They didn't. He's like, they were very nice. They said we didn't release it. Like they didn't publicize that they had done the deal. Uh, yeah, usually when there's a, a deal, Publishers Weekly prints a thing. Like David, yeah. Grand, David Grand sells a book about the Osage Indian murders to Doubleday in a large deal. You know, his agent represents so and so. They didn't do that. So the next, no, it was the night of the conversation. My agent called me. The deal went out. To, he he forwarded it to me. He's like, this just this just came out, and it was the blurb from Publishers Weekly. So they clearly he and his agent and the publisher decided to release it. I guess as a bit of a blocking move in case some publishing house 
decided to buy my proposal anyway and say like let's race this book that would be crazy and I wouldn't do it because one I know he's going to do an amazing job he had a two year head start like but yeah I mean maybe if like that one just sold and yours just sold you could be like well and hey, if it hadn't we'll been him if it. if it hadn't been him if it had been some guy who I don't know or like some professor at Oklahoma State or right, right, right. even more of a peer but a guy who has like written a huge bestseller who writes these kind of stories all the time and does an amazing job like why would I? Ra- I'm not going to raise him, but I still. That's why they did it. The next day, we just retract. You know, we retracted the proposal, and and I went into a shell and drank for six days. And I mean, it's hard for a lot of reasons. It's hard because I put a lot of pressure on myself to find a book, and I, I've rejected a million things. And I, you know, I get suggestions from friends and family members, and nothing felt right. And it was just a matter. It was just like I just knew it. It just on top of everything else, with like my dad was a historian, so. He's probably more crushed than I am right now because he's reti- he recently retired and is kind of driving my stepmom crazy, fumbling around the house thinking of something to do. Like he was like, following, he was like, I'm going to be your research assistant and I'm going to go like to the archives and like he was going to work for free for me, which would actually be amazing. So now I'm like, I need to find another history book because I have a free research assistant who actually has a lot of knowledge and expertise in doing research. But he's just like super bummed. But you, but you can. I can. There's there are so many of these stories. This is where I am. I'm like. Trying not to be completely gutted by that experience. <laughs> I think you're coming out of it. I think you're coming out of it. I think you're, you're going to reach a point where you look back and wish that you'd, you're glad that you didn't do that book. And you know who owes me a blurb? David Grand. David Grand <laughs> also may or may not be like comforting. David Grand, nicest man. Like, I know. I, like I said, I can't. Re- I mean, not genuinely only- like Menchie person. Yeah, no, I have absolutely no ill will. And, and, like, I'm excited for his book because he's one of the best. He should be tweeting about his book I think book the lesson projects. here is, like, people should be more of a braggart. Like, David Grant's, like, not caught up with, like, he's just tweeting about, like, interesting stuff. He's not bragging about he's like himself like about everyone else. Why is he not tweeting about the Osage? But we were going to take that up with him. We'll do the session in which the, all three of us you are can, there. And we'll hug in the end. <laughs> All right, for now, I believe that we're out of beer. At least I am. I am, too. All right, so we're going to call it. Thanks for coming in, Josh. Thanks for the therapy session, man. (laughs) It's going to be okay. That's it for this week's Long Forum Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Josh Dean for coming in. Normally, I only see him to watch soccer games, uh, but we talk about the same shit. Uh, thanks, Josh. And you can also check out his story for The Atavist at atavist.com. You can download our app and you can obtain it there as well. Thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer and Jenna Weiss-Berman, our fantastic editor, as well as Rachel Mave, our intern. We will see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docuseries, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.